If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What myths did the Norse believe and what influence did they exert on daily life? Was the trickster god Loki really that bad? And was Odin really that wise? And lastly, why is Christianity a crucial part of the story? Speaking to Kev Lotchen, historian and broadcaster Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough answers listener questions about the pantheon of Norse myths, including the end of days, Ragnarok. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us today. We're talking about the Norse myths, and I wonder maybe a great place to start with that is, could you just introduce us to it with the Norse creation myth? What would that look like? Yeah, so the Norse creation myth is really dramatic. It's one of my favourite myths in the Old Norse mythological world. So one thing to say right up top is we've got versions of this story in essentially two main texts. One of these is Snorri Sturluson. He's an Icelander. He's living in the 13th century at a time of kind of civil war and violence. He's a poet. He's a politician. And he writes this handbook for poets where he goes through all the old myths. And that's important. So his text is called, well, we call it the Prose Edda. And it's written about 1220. Then we've got, confusingly, also Edda, nothing to do with it, but we've got what's called the Poetic Edda. It's a collection of poetry. It's preserved in a single Icelandic manuscript called the Codex Regis from about 1270. And the creation actually in this poetic collection is described in the first poem. It's called Voluspau, which means the seeress's prophecy. And I can give you a flavour in the Old Norse because it is rather dramatic. So you've got to imagine sort of like crashing thunder and like deep bass underneath all the rest of it, maybe a volcano going off. So, Aur var alda, that ar eki var, var a sander ne sair, ne svalver unir, yurth fansk aiva, ne uphimin, gap var gingunga, en grask fergi which is essentially in the beginning, nothing existed. Neither sand, nor sea, nor rolling waves. There was no earth to be found, no sky, no grass, only the gaping void. And that's Ginungagap. This is the 
yawning primordial abyss into which the world is born, essentially. So what we've got to imagine, this huge gaping void. On To the north, we have Niflheim, which is covered in snow and ice. And to the south, we have Muspet, which is full of fire and heat. And as the story goes, poisonous ice rivers from Niflheim flow into Ginungagap and they freeze. And then when the vapour rises, it turns into layer upon layer of frosty rime. And when that rime meets the heat coming from Muspert, the rime starts to thaw and drip and it takes the form of the first being. And this first being is a frost giant called Ymir. And then the next thing that comes from this thawing ice is a cow called Oithumla, and her milk then feeds Ymir, the frost giant. And then the cow Oithumla begins to lick the salty, rimy stones, and she uncovers the head and the body of a man called Buri. And so that's sort of the setting. What's interesting then is what happens, because obviously at this point we still have no world, but one of Buri's grandchildren is the god Odin. And he, together with his other siblings, kill the frost giant Ymir. And then they take his body out into the middle of Ginungagap and they build the world. So his blood becomes the sea and the lakes and his skull becomes the sky and his flesh is the earth and his teeth and his bones are the rocks and the scree and the pebbles. And then later on, because we still don't have humans yet, the same grandchildren, including Odin, are walking along the seashore and they come across two wooden logs and they breathe life into these wooden logs and they create the first humans. So the first human woman is Embla, and the first human man is Asker. And that's how everything, according to these texts, gets going. That is such an evocative telling. Thank you. There's lots to pick up on in there. Um, but one <laughs> thing that I've, uh, I, I picked up on was you mentioned, like, you know, in this gap, there are these realms, if you like, and then there's the world that's made. So as I understand it, in Norse, mythology there are these like nine realms and that seems to be quite a popular thing people would like to know about could you give us a bit of an intro into what those are yeah so the new hamer the nine worlds the nine homes they do appear or at least that term appears in i think it's at least two of the mythological poems in the poetic edda and i think once in snorri's prose edda as well but the problem is that that term is never followed with a nice, neat list of nine worlds in any certainty. Attempts have been made to categorise them. So sort of obvious possibilities would be Ausgarther or Asgard, which is the home of the gods. And then we have Mythgarther. I'm doing it with my fingers because we'll get up to nine quite quickly and still have some left over. That's the part of the problem. So Midgard is the home of the humans. Jotunheimr, which is the home of giants. Vanaheimr, which is the home of a subsection of gods called the Vanir. And actually, the Vanir, how do I put it? There seems to be some sort of cosmic war between these two groups of god, the Aesir, and that's the Ausgarther Asgard is named for. And they're like people like Odin and Thor. And then the Vanir, like Freya and Freyr, the sibling god and goddess so possibly there's a home there 
Alfheimer, which would be the home of the elves, the light elves. Svarteheimer, which might be the home of the dark elves. Nidvetlir, which would be sort of the plain of the dwarves, essentially. And then we've got Musbedheimer, that realm of fire to the south of Gingungagap. Niflheimer, which is that realm of ice. But then we could also say, well, maybe that's another world would be hell, the realm of the dead. So then we've got up to nine quite quickly. And nine is a very important number, sort of mythologically speaking, not just for the Norse. And so whether that does actually map onto what we know about the mythology and the texts that are written and survive. And that's part of the thing. And it's worth saying this kind of up top, as it were, that it's not a perfect science. We have to reconstruct our ideas of what Norse mythology are from texts. And the really important point here is these texts are written down after Christianity has come to Scandinavia and the sort of broader Norse diaspora. They're written down in Iceland, which is settled by the Norse predominantly in the 9th century, but they're not written down until the 13th century. So if you're using texts that were essentially created Partly, sure, from oral memories that have been passed down the generations, possibly from beliefs that continue to exist in the corners and underground. You're not necessarily going to get a perfect science and you're not necessarily going to get a sense of how the people who really believed in these gods and had rituals surrounding them actually understood this mythology at the time. That's really interesting, that veil over how people living at that time would have believed in those gods themselves. But I guess actually this ties into a set of questions that has come up quite a lot from Waterfist Instagram, Nicholas Serges, Monica Del Valle on Twitter. I'll paraphrase it, but they're all interested in that link between Norse myths and Christianity. And you're kind of saying about how Norse myths have been written down in a Christian period. So I guess this is Monica's question. To what extent are the Norse myths likely to be Christian tellings rather than the myths of the Norse themselves? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. It's also a really important question. It's worth grounding ourselves in some of the history first. So very broadly speaking, let's say that the conversion to Christianity happens in around the year 1000 AD. That's certainly pretty much when it happens in Iceland, for example. These texts, the two I mentioned particularly, so Snorri's Edda and the Poetic Edda, but there are others. So we have the sagas also written in Iceland during the same period, but looking back to that period of settlement, that Viking Age period where these beliefs are very much current. Those texts are written down, give or take, in the 1200s. So we've already got an over two century lag there. And we have to remember they're trying to make sense of the material. They're remembering it. They're codifying it. They're rationalising it. So if we think of Snorri in particular, he's a really useful one because we have actually a name there. We don't know who wrote the poems of the Poetic Edda or how long they were about or in what forms they were about before they ended up in this specific manuscript, in this specific form. But we do know Snorri and we know quite a lot about his life. He led quite exciting dramatic life at a very exciting dramatic time for Iceland. So he's likely to be linking at least some elements of these myths to elements of Christianity because that's his main point of reference. There are some fairly obvious examples or likely examples. So he describes Odin as the all-father. So very much that top dog sense. Well, 
okay, so is he employing a Christian frame of reference there that doesn't necessarily reflect what people really believed? He refers to Loki as the originator of all evil. So there's something quite devilish there. But when we get into the myths themselves, Loki's role is a lot more nuanced and Loki himself is a lot more interesting than that. He's not just evil by any means. So that makes it tricky. But we also have to think about the time itself, you know, so going back to the Viking Age. So Viking Age is roughly 8th century to 11th century, but very fuzzy at those extremities. And we can't really think of here it ended, here it began, and everyone who lived in it knew that. You know, it's not like that at all. It's also a very wide geographical area. So if we think of the homelands as being Scandinavia, but then... There's spread into the British Isles, to Ireland, to Iceland, to Greenland. They end up all the way in the edge of North America around the year 1000 AD. But at the same time, they're also moving east into the Baltic, into Ukraine, into Russia, going down the waterways, Constantinople, the Islamic Caliphate, the Mediterranean, Africa. So you have to think people are moving in these places, living in these places, settling in these places, and they may be carrying many of these beliefs that we think of as old Norse myths, essentially, with them. But it doesn't mean that in one area they're thinking the same things as in another area, or in one point in time they're thinking the same things as they would think sort of 100 or 200 years previously or afterwards. So there's no guarantee that someone who actually lived at that time would recognise, at least in its entirety, the mythology as it's set out in the texts that we have. So how much they influenced? Well, probably a fair bit, but also we have to think that we today are living in a very sort of texturally rich culture. We, we really think a lot about the written word, the importance of the written word, but we possibly give less weight to oral tradition that is passed down the years. And we know that in a non-literate or largely pre-literate society like the Viking Age cultures, there's a lot of that oral transmission and a lot of that is really tight. And there's all sorts of ways we can say, oh, yes, actually, we can trace this from this period all the way to this period. And we have other ways of saying, yeah, this is correct information. So we can't dismiss it all. And that can be quite disheartening. Perhaps you're like, oh, well, we don't know what we don't know. But I actually don't think so. I think it's it's very human and it's very it makes it much more interesting. It makes it really exciting to engage with, partly because we don't necessarily know everything maybe we'll know more in the future. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There's a lot of places we can go with this, like the Vikings themselves, actually, and go in any direction we want. So I've got a handful of things I really want to jump on. A very quick one first, just to clarify, Snorri, he is an Icelandic poet, would be the way to describe him. Something like an Icelandic Homer, would that be a fair way to describe him? He's a very great poet. He's a very great writer. So he's not just writing poetry, he's writing sagas, for example, he's like kind of epic stories of past settlers and kings. He writes this collection of king sagas called Hames Kringler, The Circle of the World. But he's also a very important politician, both on the national stage of Iceland. He's a huge part of why they end up having a civil war. He's not just sitting there in his nice little farmhouse composing verse and, and sagas and having a nice time. No, he's a wheeler and dealer. And he ends up very embroiled in international politics, particularly sort of Norwegian-facing international politics. And he is actually assassinated on the orders of the Norwegians in his own basement. Well, that links neatly into another angle I wanted to throw on, because as you said, these are text records and, you know, you, you just said this as well, like it's a pre-literate society and we're talking about text records, but what about any other evidence? So the question we have on Instagram from, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this, I apologise, Tracyka, she wanted to know, have archaeologists found objects that relate to the story? So beyond text, like are there any depictions that we might rely on? Yeah, this is where I, it's absolutely fascinating because you think, oh, well, these texts are so removed from the period. And then you start to realise that archaeologists have found things that really tie quite nicely together, almost sort of deceptively nicely. You do have to be careful that you're not sort of putting it on yourself. But certainly archaeology is a really important one because it is contemporary. So that's big to say. If we think about the mythological stories, there seem to be elements of several of those depicted in the archaeological record. One example is several figures of a human sitting in a boat, apparently fishing, and the foot has gone through the bottom of the boat and they're fishing some sort of sea creature. Now, this is very, very similar to the mythological story that we have preserved in the texts of Thor going out fishing, but accidentally catching the Mythgardthsorm, so the Midgard serpent. It's this great beast that encircles the world and will sort of have a big part to play at Ragnarok, the end of the world. And the story goes that when he tries to pull it up, he pulls so hard that his foot, which he's bracing against the bottom of the boat, goes pop straight through the boat. So when you actually see that depicted... That's, that's a really wonderful moment of recognition. There's another really interesting one that I love, and it's, it's a stone. It's a big stone with a hole through it, and the idea is that you poke the top bit, I don't know what it's called, the technical term, but, you know, the blowy bit of the bellows, you poke that through, and the fire's there on the other side, and you can blow air onto the fire. But above the hole is carved a face, 
It's quite a stylized, curly face. But the face's mouth appears to be stitched up. So it's got these little lines all the way around it. And again, we don't know for sure. You know, they're not, no one's telling us that this is definitely what it is, but it does closely parallel another one of the mythological stories where Loki makes a wager with the dwarves and he bets his head. When he loses the bet, he says, oh, you can't take my head because I didn't say anything about my neck. And the dwarves say, all right, smart ass. Okay, we're going to sew up your mouth, <laughs> at least because we own the head, we can do what we like with it. So that's what they do. And so there's, is that what's depicted? I mean, it, it seems likely. Others are more ambiguous. There's a really interesting one that was found a few years ago at Lyra in Denmark. And Lyra, again, you can visit. They've reconstructed this huge hall. And Lyra seems to be in a, be a place where there were lots of... Well, there was communal activities and feasting, but also religious rituals. And certainly there are writers from outside the Norse sphere, Christian writers who are describing some quite dodgy things going on at Lyra, including human sacrifice. No sacrificed human remains have been found. So again, archaeology does not always back up the texts. But one thing that has been found is this tiny little silver figure that dates from around 900 AD, so very much still in that pagan period, essentially. And they are sitting on an elaborate chair, carved chair, and they seem to be wearing beads and a long dress. And so you'd think most likely depicting a female, except one of its eyes has been flattened. It's almost like it's been hit, just tapped by a hammer. So you're thinking one eye. Oh, well, who does that sign up? Well, that's, that's Odin. That's Odin giving up his eye for wisdom and runes. And then there are two birds perched on each of the chair arms. You think, Odin's ravens and then what seem to be two beasts at the back wolves in which case are those Odin's two wolves so we know all those elements from the texts and so is that Odin and if that is Odin and but that is Odin potentially in female garb actually that's appropriate because Odin is known to practice a form of magic that is associated with females predominantly that magic is called Seder so again it's complicating the picture but it doesn't necessarily take us away from the picture we already have. And can you just very quickly tell us about that kind of magic and why that was linked with gender? So say there is a type of magic that is to do with prophecy. So the Cirrus's prophecy, that poem we started with, a Cirrus is called a vulva, and it's this idea of, of someone who... It very much has connections and links to other worlds and other beings beyond that. And sometimes we find, again, talking of the archaeology, we're moving away from mythology, but we're looking at religious practice and belief more generally. We find female burials where there are signs that some sort of ritual communing with unseen powers might be taking place. The most famous, the sort of big one of those, where you think, okay, are these Sather practitioners, is the Osterberg ship burial from, I think, 834? Something like that. They found it buried. So, And they even know it was sort of late summer, early autumn, because there were little wild apples in there with them. And it's two women. And there are elements again of the burial that make you think hmm so these are incredibly important figures in the communities this is the most sumptuous burial you can imagine it's just 
full of incredible artefacts from all over the world. There's a lot of cat references, and we can we can talk about cats in relation to Freya in a bit, I'm sure, but there's quite a lot that makes you think, well, okay, is is this what's going on? Are these Seder practitioners? And you just often see that associated with women and in the texts, in the sagas, when you read about Seder being practised, it's usually women, but also Odin, which is wonderful. I am definitely intrigued by Freya's cats. And we will talk about the gods in a moment because I wasn't addressing yet. But um, <laughs> one thing I'd like to touch on, firstly, we should talk about like who the Norse are when we're referring to Norse myths, but also were there kind of like myths adopted in the cultures where they visited? Mm, that's a really good question. Yeah, so it's probably worth just grounding ourselves in some dates and some facts, isn't it? So if we're talking about Norse, Norse is a quite useful catch-all term for the culture associated with the Viking Age. So when we're talking about the Viking Age, we are talking roughly from middle of the 8th century. We're looking at when... Scandinavians at that point, so Norway, Sweden, Denmark, starts its trading, its raiding, its exploration, its settlement, its that outward facing phenomenon where we see this huge spread of people and ideas and colonising previously unsettled lands. It's the most incredible phenomenon and it starts sort of with raiding traditionally. So when we say Norse, we're really talking about Scandinavia plus that Nordic world in the early to mid medieval period. But what's interesting when we think about Norse mythology, so those characters that we associate so much with the Norse world, with the Viking age, with the Vikings. So, you know, characters like Odin and Thor and Freya and Loki and you know, all the rest of it. Actually, they're not, as far as we can tell, specific to Norse culture, or at least they weren't. But the interesting thing here is that, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of Northern Europe, Scandinavia and Iceland, etc., etc., is converted to Christianity late. So by the time we reach that year, 1000 AD, and Iceland has been officially converted, for example, well, there's been Christianity for centuries in for example on the continent you know Carolingians by that point very very strong you know Anglo-Saxon England very very strongly Christian and we don't have those sorts of incredible sources the textual sources that we have for for example from 13th century Iceland but we have these little echoes and these little hints that tell us that they weren't alone the Norse weren't alone in these beliefs we don't know what form they took so to give you an example, there's a 10th century Icelandic manuscript and it's a medical manuscript. And it one of the things it contains is a charm it's called the nine herbs charm. And again, I mentioned right at the start, nine is an important number. Nine is always an important number. That nine herbs charm it has lines that say something like a snake came crawling in. It bit someone. Woden or Woden took nine glory twigs and hit that serpent and it flew into nine parts we're not quite clear what's going on but we have Woden and that's the equivalent of Odin we also have Woden mentioned in Anglo-Saxon royal genealogies so kings are very keen to trace their ancestry back to Woden and to Adam and Eve as a sort of way of cementing their own legitimacy 
And we also then have it in the days of the week. And again, this isn't just Anglo-Saxon, but, you know, this idea of Tuesday, Tears Day, Tear, one of the gods, Wednesday, Woden's Day. And those are very much a sort of pre-Christian phenomenon. Thinking outside, so I mentioned sort of Anglo-Saxon England, thinking of, say, we have a text in Old High German, for example, it's called Musbitli, and it's a ninth century text from sort of what's now the Bavarian region. And it's talking about the fate of the soul, the Christian soul, what happens after death, what happens at the last judgment. But it's got this weird word, Musbitli, which is very much like that Musbet, that world of ice and fire, and there are references in Snorri's Edda and the poetic Edda to the sons of Musbet, who are this destructive force that come at the end of the world at Ragnarok. And this idea of Musbitli being about the end of the world and the destruction of the world is clearly in this ninth century Old High German text as well. So we just get these hints of a much broader mythological system that extended far beyond Scandinavia, Nordic countries, but was then lost so much earlier that very little survives. It's not codified in the way it's codified in 13th century Iceland. It's obviously amazing that that influence is so widespread. One thing we absolutely have to talk about now, because we've danced around it a little bit, is the gods themselves. We mentioned a few names, Oda, Freya, Loki, Tyr. Susie1340 on Twitter would really like to know who are the most important gods and goddesses in Norse mythology? If I just read out this, uh, probably my favourite question of this podcast coming up from A.M. Ramsden, I would like to hear about the goddess Freya. She is an absolute boss lady or no? <laughs> yes, she is. Yeah, you're absolutely right, A.M. Ramsden. She is. So that idea of kind of important, let's start there, because just again to say important depends on how these are being presented to us and they're not necessarily representative. I think we've got to get away from the idea of a hierarchy because we just don't know. So I mentioned Odin already and Snorri calls him the all-father but this idea of sacrifice one eye to get mystical runes and, and knowledge. He's wily and he's unpredictable. This is not some benevolent all-father which I think is why that particular word is quite misleading. He's not a very nice piece of work most of the time and he, yeah he does seem to be obsessed about getting information particularly about the end of the world. He's always going off into the world and finding strange beings to ask questions of. He does wisdom contests. He's a really interesting figure. Whatever brains he had do not seem to have necessarily been passed on to Thor, his son. Big beard, hammer, kind of likes fighting giants, that lot. There's one poem where Thor gets into a sort of wisdom contest, exchange of wit with a figure in disguise who turns out to be Odin and he does not come off well. You know, poor Thor is not is not quite up to that. He's the brawn, he's the muscle. And then yes, there is the boss lady herself, Freya. She is she's really cool. Snorri introduces her as he says she's the most famous of the goddesses. She lives in a place called Folkvanger. And I really like this is the first thing he says. So he says when she moves in battle, she gets half of the fallen slain warriors and Odin gets the other half. Now, we know about Odin, partly thanks to Wagner, this idea that he takes half the slain warriors up to join him in sort of eternal feasting until Ragnarok comes and they have to line up and go into battle and prove their worth. But Freya gets the other half, according to Snorri. So she's not just 
this thing that often happens to female goddesses they're characterized as essentially sexy that's kind of it and it's always very disappointing so I like the fact that that's what Snorri leads with she's described as being pulled along on a chariot that is pulled by cats but again you've got to think here okay these are not sort of the meek I say meek I don't think I've ever met a meek tabby cat but they surely exist you know they're not the little cute slinky things you've got to think kind of more Norwegian forest cats possibly kind of pumped up you know bare and wild and and really quite cool she is said to be fond of love songs she's good at being called on for such things so there is definitely that love connection which is important to remember then there's her brother Freyr my favorite god I, Freyr is like the one I would want to hang out with he's He's a powerful god of fertility. He rules over the sun and the rain. He is owner of the most magnificently over-the-top boar called Gutlinbursti, who's meant to have these golden bristles that glow in the dark. I just, I want to meet this boar. This boar sounds epic. And then, of course, there's Loki. Now, Loki is wily. He helps and hinders the other gods, depending on what story we're reading. And together with a giantess, he fathers the monstrous Fenris wolf, the Midgard serpent, that one that Thor tried to sort of fish out of the water that encircles the world. And then Hel, who's this half human, half corpse ruler of the dead. And she's quite a strange, weird figure. And Loki is going to feature very heavily at Ragnarok, you know, in the story of Ragnarok, the end of the world. But he's not all bad. He's certainly not all evil at all. I want to think a bit more about that idea of who's the most important, though, because this might mean a lot of different things depending on the context. So it's possible you might call on one god to help you at sea, another god to help you during childbirth and another to help you when you want your crops to grow for example, a particular family, a particular part of the world, a particular sort of settlement, even a particular country might have different affiliations, different sort of loyalties to different gods. So if we move away from the gods, there are so many land spirits and guardian spirits and ancestors. There's a whole supporting cast. And actually, day to day, you might be leaving offerings for a land spirit, a local spirit that has nothing to do with the gods of the pantheon, as it were. And it's important as well to say that there are other gods that may have lost popularity over time or have sort of fallen out of the kind of big hitters by the time we get to the point where these ideas are being written down in 13th century Iceland. Tyr is the prime example there. So Tyr is one of the gods in the text. He does appear, but he's not He's not that exciting. He's best known for putting his hand in the mouth of the Fenris wolf as a mark of faith, but the gods betray the Fenris wolf. And so Fenrir quite reasonably bites Tyr's hand off. So he's the one-handed god. But what's interesting, many things interesting about Tyr, his name comes from the same root as Deus, Deo, that god word, which is also the same root that we get Zeus and Jupiter, this idea of this kind of Ur god, this sky god. And so perhaps once upon a time, that's where the sort of importance came from. But yet we see by the time these stories are being written down, he is just a supporting character. Poor Tyr. There's lots of search interest around 
Asgard. So as I understand this, Asgard is the home of the gods, and I think we picked it up as one of the possible nine realms. What can you tell us about Asgard and how it fits in? Asgard, Ausgard, literally means home of the gods, pretty much, but specifically the group of gods called the Aesir, and these gods include Thor and Odin. And the other group of gods that we know about are the Vanir, who include Freya and Freyr. It seems that they were rivals. It seems that essentially the Aesir won. They took in some of the Vanir as hostages and then the Vanir kind of get assimilated. Now, the word Ausgarder, Asgard, does make rare appearances in the mythological poems that we have in the Poetic Edda, and also Skaldic poetry. Now, Skaldic poetry is a different type of poetry. It's written by named poets. It has a lot of mythological references. It seems to be the oldest textual tradition that we have from the Viking Age proper that, again, sort of gets embedded in those later texts. But it's really Snorri in his prose Edda who makes the most use of it and codifies it and we see that in there's one tale told by Snorri the tale of the master builder and in this tale a giant appears and he offers to build for the gods a fortified castle essentially and he says he can do it in I think it's a year and a half 18 months and he says that if he does this in that time he wants Freya as a prize she's often being sort of passed around as a possible prize it's it's very much not cool but the gods in this case think that well she's he's never going to manage it so they agree problem is giant has got a magical horse and this magical horse works at lightning speed and suddenly the gods realize oh this is being built a little bit too fast for our liking and so this is one of the stories where loki is a force for good because loki so he's also a shapeshifter. He's so cool. He transforms himself into a mare, into a female horse, and he lures away the giant's male horse, which means that the giant can no longer build his fortified castle as promised, and so Freya is not in any danger of being taken away. What's wonderful is we know that Loki and the giant's horse got up to some sexy time because later on, Loki gives birth to Sleipnir, who's the amazing eight-legged horse that Odin then uses as his steed. I hadn't heard the story about Loki giving birth before. That's really interesting. Yeah, he does lots of things. There's also a story where he ties his... Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Ties his testicles to... Wow. A nanny goat, I think. It's one of the first texts I ever translated when I was an undergraduate. It gets weirder. So it's because... He's trying to make a giantess called Skadi laugh because the gods have essentially killed her dad. They've stolen the mead of poetry from him. So, I mean, like I say, the gods are not, they are not goodies. This is not a story where they come off particularly well. And Skadi basically dresses in battle armour and comes to Asgard, to Ausgard, looking for vengeance. And they essentially say, look, 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 okay, all right, okay, how about this? You call off your attempt to destroy us, if we can make you laugh, and then we'll give you a husband. And Skadi then gets to choose a husband from looking at all the gods' feet. 
after she has actually laughed because Loki has tied his testicles to a bloody goat, pulls them backwards and forwards, and then he falls into Skadi's lap, and Skadi laughs. But yeah, she chooses, she thinks she's choosing the most beautiful god because she has chosen the most beautiful feet, and she's hoping that god is Baldur, you know, the golden boy, Odin's child. But in fact, she's chosen Njord, or Njörður, the god of the sea. And so there's this wonderful mismatch between them because she's she becomes sort of a giantess goddess of the mountains of hunting of snow of skis and he's a sea god and so the two of them can just never work out where they want to live because she hates the sound of the the seagulls and the seashore and he hates the sound of the wolves howling up in the mountains and they just can never live together i'm pretty sure that's where tolkien gets his inspiration for you know the ents for anyone who's like a hardcore Tolkien fan you know the song of the Ents the guardians of the tree spirits and it's the Ents wives and the Ent husbands basically take a verse each and they're saying you know I'll I'll come for you I'll look for you when when spring is on the bough and the other one went autumn and it's this idea of a kind of mismatch of the world and the landscapes that they they want to live in. Okay so we've heard lots of tales lots of bits of myths is there one that is your favourite? Yeah okay so so I have favourite characters, definitely. So my favourite, Skadi, this skiing, like, mountain wolf goddess giant. I love her. And I, as I said before, I love Freyr as well. I basically think of him as a sort of laid-back hippie. But in terms of full-on stories, you can't really beat... There's one called Thrymskvida. It's one of the poems in the Poetic Edda. Thor wakes up one day and he sees that his hammer is gone. And he is very upset by this. It's also a big problem because the hammer is what's used to protect the gods and protect the human world against the giants. And it turns out the giants have stolen it. And they want, surprise, surprise, once again, Freya in exchange for giving the hammer back. So Loki convinces Thor to dress up as Freya in full bridal garb. And Loki himself dresses up as Freya's handmaiden and this is really interesting in itself so Thor in this sort of hyper macho masculine way is absolutely horrified bit by this and he actually says I'm not doing I'm not dressing up as Freya because the gods people will call me Rager which essentially means gay in a pejorative sense and Loki you can basically see him rolling his eyes he's like for god's sake you know this is Loki who shapeshifts and gender shifts and is you know wonderfully fluid. Thor is meanwhile standing there with his big muscle, I'm not doing that. But he does do that. And so off they go to giant land. And they're sitting at the wedding feast and Thor's got his bridal veil down and you just imagine him sort of like seven foot hunk of of muscle. And the giants keep saying, something not right here. Like, why? why? She's, She's eaten, I think it's a whole ox and very many salmon. Why is she just gobbling all this down? And Loki, as the handmaiden, is saying, oh, it's because she was so keen to come here. She hasn't eaten for over a week. And then they catch sight of Thor's eyes glowing under his bridal veil. Why why are Freya's eyes glowing like that? Oh, she hasn't slept for a week because she was going to come here. And then, of course, they bring out the hammer and they're like, hooray, here's the hammer. And Thor leaps up and jumps over the benches and grabs the hammer and bashes the giants. And that's the end of it. I like it because it's fun and it's bawdy. And it was obviously really popular, which gives us a sense of how these stories were being told. It's preserved in later, slightly later Scandinavian 
ballads, so people obviously really enjoyed it. But it's also really clever because it's playing with stereotypes and social expectations and vanities in all sorts of very subversive ways. And it also reminds us that gods, or at least Norse gods, are faintly ridiculous a lot of the time. So it's not that Judeo-Christian tradition where they're omnipotent, omniscient, you know, they're larger than life, they're fallible, they're entertaining, they're ridiculous. And in that sense, they're probably something closer to the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, for example. Oh, that's an absolutely perfect segue, because I have a question from Instagram from Sandy Sisley one who wants to know to what extent are the similarities between Norse myths and Greek and Roman ones? Now, that is a good one because there are definitely similarities. I'd say they're more thematic, they're more conceptual. So the idea of fate, for example, is very big. You know, the Greeks have the fates and the Norse have their norns. They're both sort of polytheistic, so they have multiple gods. It's also that sense of a bigger mythological world. So they have lots of other beings which often sort of stand in opposition to that central pantheon. So, you know, the, the titans in the case of the Greeks, but then the giants, the frost giants, particularly in the case of the Norse. And as I say, it's sort of more a case of them being larger than life, fallible, dramas writ large, but also their tendency to both interact with but also interfere with the affairs of mortal humans generally it's the case that they just they just have good stories they're fun you know and i think there it's important to get away from the idea of this being what we would call religion in this sort of closed off separate part of society, individual practice and so on, you've got to think of this much more as what they would have called something like seether, like custom, this idea of all these things permeating every aspect of life. And the stories for me feel like what gets told when you're in your second week at sea and bored or you're sitting around the winter fire and you know, someone's there telling stories. It's part of that social and cultural world as well as the world of belief. So one thing I particularly found quite interesting with Norse mythology, if we're talking about in relation to Greek and Roman mythology, is that in Norse mythology, there is a kind of end to the story. And you've mentioned it a few times, Ragnarok. So could you just set out for us what happens there and this kind of end game, if you like, Yes, Ragnarok is fascinating. It's such an interesting one. So what does it mean? Ragnarok, depending on the version of the word that you find in the texts, it means something like the final destiny of the gods or the twilight of the gods. Because once again, our main sources are Snorri and the Poetic Edda. So 13th century sources from Iceland. So what happens at Ragnarok? Well, first comes the Fimble winter, which lasts for three winters without summers in between. It's sort of three years worth of kind of apocalyptic nuclear winter. Then comes the world fire, in which the whole world is destroyed. And then the earth sinks into the ocean and then the sun darkens. It's been eaten by Fenrir, the Fenris wolf. And the earthquakes and rocks fall and the tree Yggdrasil starts to come loose. This world tree, as we think about it, starts to quake. And then the powers of the underworld 
arrive for the final battle. And in some versions, they're sailing on this ship. This ship is like, whoever came up with this? It's Narlfar. It's made from the nails of corpses. And so Snorri has this point, which is always cut the nails of the dead. Because if the nails are too long, that ship will grow faster because there will be more nails to build it and Ragnarok will come sooner, which is, I just, it's so trippy. It's brilliant. Then the fire giant Surt, or Surtur, leads the battle against the gods. Odin fights the Fenris wolf and is killed. Thor fights the Midgard serpent and they kill each other. And everything is consumed by flames. But just when you think it's all over, from the ashes, a new world rises up out of the sea. And there are a few very minor deities that have survived. So Vidar and Vauli and Murthy and Magni, so the children of Odin, Thor. And they meet at Asgard, Ausgard, that home of the gods. And they find the gods' gaming pieces in the grass. And then the cycle starts again. So an ending becomes a beginning. So I've got a question from Mogi on Instagram, and they want to know, is there any historical truth to Norse myths? How would you answer that? Ah, that's, a, that's a tough one. It depends how do you define historical truth, isn't it? It's, okay, generally speaking, let's say no, although Snorri is really keen to present the gods as humans, mortals who came from Troy, migrated north, and then started being worshipped as gods. This is a process it's got a technical term called euhumorization it's this idea of yeah humans being worshipped as gods and it's a way of tying old norse mythology into a broader christian european framework it's it's a way of being able to talk about all this stuff without giving anyone the sense that you might believe in it a bit too much but having said that we've just talked about ragnarok that's a wonderful example where there may actually be a historical grain of truth in there from many centuries earlier. And this takes us back to the 6th century AD, because it's been suggested that in the late antique period, in the middle of the 6th century, there was a massive dust veil that covered huge swathes of the world. There's a Roman official called Cassiodorus who writes about it's, it's so beautiful how he writes about it. He says there's something coming at us from the stars. And he talks about a blue-coloured sun and the summer without heat and perpetual frost and unnatural droughts and the light from the stars being darkened. And actually, already you might start to hear some echoes there with when I was talking about Ragnarok. The culprit seems to be either a massive volcanic eruption or several massive volcanic eruptions. Then it's been suggested that that's where the idea of a catastrophic winter and dark skies and, and general death and destruction came from. And it's this idea of these stories being carried down in the cultural memory until they become Ragnarok. So although the myths themselves may not be true in a literal sense, that doesn't mean there weren't other truths behind them. So kind of like a Krakatoa type eruption then? Yes, massive. And they're finding evidence for these from, ah, I'm going to get the date wrong, sort of like 536, so 530s at least, in the ice cores from Greenland, for example. So they know something definitely happened, but they, they've got several suspects for which volcanoes they might have been. But either way, they are vast. And of course, 
these myths are being written down in Iceland in the forms we have them. You have to think Iceland itself is like hugely volcanic and the settlers coming from predominantly Norway and the British Isles would never have seen anything like this. So you imagine those first eruptions in Iceland, the first time then the new settlers saw fire and smoke pouring out of the mountains. I mean, that, that, that in itself is pretty apocalyptic. It gives a sense of a kind of like a godlike place almost. And I did just wonder when you were talking about that, is there any kind of evidence at all that Norse peoples might have imagined that the gods existed in a physical place in the same way that Mount Olympus is a location? That's a good question. I don't know. I think certainly there's the sense that other supernatural beings exist in physical places. Iceland is a good example of that. There's there's a mountain called Helgafell, like Holy Mountain, and there are sagas where you know you are very specifically not allowed to urinate or defecate on this mountain, otherwise it's an insult to the gods and the spirits living there. Certainly those sorts of, they call them Landweitir ideas. Also recently, I talked about Surt, the fire giant, his role at Ragnarok, and archaeologists have found what appear to be offerings left to placate Surt, hidden in a specific cave under a lava field that erupted during the time of the first settlers. And the lava field itself is called Sertshetlir, like Sert lava. But it's this idea that, yes, someone is there and they need to be placated. Asgard, Ausgard itself, I can't think of... I can't, I can't think of sort of a specific location that they might have thought was. But that doesn't mean there wasn't. Intriguing, isn't it? So to bring this more into... The present day. I mean, I've had a number of questions come in. Marina, CRS 2018, Nathan Bayliss, a couple more, all wanting to know about the link between Norse mythology and pop culture. What is your take on the kind of the influence that it's having today? I love it. It's brilliant. I think people living back in the Viking age and the centuries following it would have loved it too, because it's that idea that they're organic, they're living, they change, they're fluid, they're used in different contexts for different purposes. Having said that, we can also talk about some of the darker uses perhaps, but you know, we just have to look at the Marvel comics and the films to see that. Then we have writers, you know, Neil Gaiman, his Sandman graphic novels, his American Gods, of course, we've got Joanne Harris... Douglas Adams, Alan Garner, you know, we're going back in time, Diane Wynne-Jones, Tolkien, of course. You know, I mean, these are huge. And then if we think about music, we've got everything from Richard Wagner, Led Zeppelin, Ward Runa. Ward Runa is a sort of contemporary example. If you haven't listened to Ward Runa, I would so highly, beyond highly recommend it. So they, they're led by someone called Ina Selvik, who is just incredible they're inspired by the runes and the nordic landscapes and beliefs of the viking age and they use this amazing variety of historical and traditional instruments but they also come themselves from the genre of sort of black metal so it's it's so good and it's so kind of authentic and yet contemporary and that's as i say what i love about it But this also brings us to a bigger historical point, which is how so much of 
how we view historical periods and cultures and individuals is actually a reflection of the present day. It's how we want to see it. It's how we want to make use of it. We could perhaps talk a bit about that as well. Well, that actually leads quite neatly into a question we had from Instagram from MHFQ, who was asking how interpretation and representation of Norse mythology has changed over time. So, you know, where we go from the Viking Age, as it is, to through to the modern day, where we've got Marvel, but also some of those darker things that you alluded to. Yes, it is worth talking about those darker misuses, because it is really important to say that those connections really don't exist in terms of the, the historical connections that people are trying to make with the past. They're very warped a lot of the time. And that needs to be called out because there are some really bad ones. So, I mean, for example, there's a white supremacist Odinism form of worship that seems to be thriving in the dark corners of US prisons at the moment. And the link there is very much back to Nazism, not Old Norse mythology. But there are really positive modern uses as well. So Woodruna is a great example of that. Earlier in the year, I went to see... I don't even know how to describe it. Old Norse mythology wrestling. It was a festival in London and they did it. They knew all the sources. I was talking to them afterwards. He said, oh, I'm so glad that someone recognised that we were using Snorri's Edda and we were using the Poetic Edda and yet they were like pro wrestlers beating each other up on the stage. It was these sorts of modern uses. I mean, you wouldn't have got that 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So you've got to think about what that's saying about us now as well. That was Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough, a historian and broadcaster based at Bath Spa University. Her new book, Embers of the Hands, An Intimate History of the Viking Age, will be published with Profile next year. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 